Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za your first time with us this morning, uh, greetings to you. My name is Bumelelo, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are continuing in our series in the book of Acts this morning, so won't you please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. Our focus this morning will be from verses 1 all the way to 21, but for now I'm only going to read just the first four verses, and then we'll see from verse 5 later on as we go on. Hear God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is God's Word. Things fall apart. That is the title uh, of a book uh, given by Nigerian novelist Chinua Achebe to his story of Okonkwo, a 19th century ambitious warrior whose energy for advancement and plans put in place to overcome his low station in life are dashed by a series of seriously unfortunate events leading up to his own suicide. Dennis Johnson notes that the title of this book, Things Fall Apart, is typical of life on earth since the fall. Things on earth fall apart. Things move easier in our world from order to disorder. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, When we we buy a new house and the drains back up. Uh, We buy a new car and it's scratched in the parking lot. Clean air and clean water get polluted very easily. Have you ever thought about how easy it is to break things than it is to fix them? A simple oil spill causes massive chaos on a country's economy and jobs. Human relationships are the same. They are wounded by insensitivity, misunderstanding, unfaithfulness, deceit. And and when those things have fallen apart between us, they are very hard to repair. There can be repairing that happens, but it's hard because words spoken out of turn break human relationships. And the Bible shows us that God is not unaware that things fall apart. In fact, the Bible shows us that God has had a plan to repair everything permanently. The the Old Testament is chock full of types and prophecies of what the Bible calls the last days. When disorder will give way to order, iniquities will be corrected and wounds will be healed permanently. And this great repair project that God is embarking on comes in stages. The biggest event in the repair project is the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the second massive event in that great project to repair the world is this text in front of us this morning. The coming of the Holy Spirit upon the believers and the resulting sign of tongues, the sign of languages, 
is a moment that screams loudly of the fulfillment of God's promises, of the beginning of the last days, of a real taste of heaven and earth, and a loud call for all the nations, and a foreshadowing of what life will be like when Christ returns to wrap up the repair project. You see, up until this point, the nations of the world have been left there to their own devices. Paul says this in Acts 14, that God has just left everybody to their own devices. Everybody's just doing their own thing, and they have no hope of God in the world. They have no call towards God. But this moment right here in front of us this morning, as we come into this text, this moment as God the Spirit makes touchdown on the earth, and He proclaims salvations for all nations. This moment of history is a unique one. It is rich with Old Testament imagery, reminding us of the burning bush and reversing the Tower of Babel, where men were divided trying to reach God. We're told here in verse 1 of chapter 2 that the day of Pentecost arrived and they were all in the same place. The day of Pentecost is the Greek word that literally means 50th because it was a festival in the Jewish calendar that marked 50 days after the Passover. So remember they had the, the Passover where they had a, a meal together. Then there was 50 days later that was called Pentecost. During this festival, Jews and proselytes, people who are converted to Judaism, will come from all over the Roman world to celebrate. And it was on this day when an event occurred that no one that morning was ready for. We're told that this group of 120 were together in one place. And while they were together, look at verse 2 with me. They came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. There is a loud sound, like a, a mighty rushing wind. And the house, and this sound, this mighty wind fills the whole place. The way that Luke describes the sound is reminiscent of what we call Old Testament theophanies. When God arrives to act in the Old Testament, there are a number of times when we're told that He arrives in the wind, or that He comes and He rides the wind. An example, of course, is uh, when the Lord speaks to Job out of the tempest, out of the mighty storm, out of the whirlwind in Job chapter 38. The point being here, very loudly and clearly, is that God has arrived. And unlike the Son of Man, whose first coming, He came quietly without pomp or ceremony on a manger, when the Spirit comes to land on His people, He comes loudly as a stormy wind. But Luke goes on in verse 3 to say, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. In the midst of this storm, in the midst of this loud cackling wind that is, that is audible to everyone, there appears these tongues of fire that rest on each of the disciples. In His power, the Holy Spirit descends on His people with something that looks like tongues of fire. Now, this phrase, tongues of fire, could very well be translated as languages of fire. In fact, uh, one Bible, the Holman Bible, translates it that way. This is because that is what the word means here. That's the semantic uh, range of the word. The word could mean a literal physical tongue, but it more likely means a language. It is usually meaning a language when it is translated. And the Holy Spirit descends on His church, and unlike Christ, when He descended on Christ like a dove, here He descends on the church as languages of fire. And the implication here is that these are different languages that are, land, that are landing on different people. You see, because He says, they, it's not, He's not saying a language of fire that landed on them. He says languages of fire, which means on each of the disciples, a different language lands. And this, of course, alludes to what the church will be. They will be those who employ different languages to proclaim the wonders of God as they do here. You, you remember that the Lord Jesus and the Father had promised the disciples 
power when the Holy Spirit arrived. You remember this? We saw this a few weeks ago. And this power, as it arrives on them now, is symbolized by languages that rest on each of them. And then, filled with the Spirit, we see in verse 4 that they speak in other languages, in different languages, as, this, as the Spirit gives them utterance, meaning as the Spirit enables them and points through them to speak. When the, when the Spirit descends upon the disciples, He empowers them in different ways. And we will see many of those ways as the book of Acts continues. But the main way in which the, the, He empowers them is that, the, that this gospel of the kingdom will go out from them to many languages, to many nations. That is the primary way in which He empowers them. Now, I've just done a, a bit of a quick sweep of these four verses. Because I want, us, I want to bring us to this point. What does this event mean for us? How are we to understand this event? I want to organize our understanding of this text under three headings. First, we must understand the identity and the work of the Holy Spirit who has just arrived. Okay, we can't go further until we properly understand the identity and the work of the Holy Spirit who have just arrived in the disciples. Second, we must understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what it meant for them, and then conversely, what it means for us. And then thirdly, lastly, we're going to look at what the meaning of these tongues are. So first, let's look at the identity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is clearly depicted here in this text and throughout the Bible as God. Okay? That's who He is. He's not a force. Okay? He's not the power that the disciples received. But rather He is the one who gives them power. He gives them enable. He is not the power itself. He's not a force. Um, it's, that, seems, that, that, that distinction seems simple, but it has massive implications. If the Holy Spirit is God, then it means that these disciples here are subject to Him and not the other way around. Are you with me? They are subject to Him. He is not subject to them. He is not some kind of muti. You understand? Not some kind of power. Not some kind of magic trick that we can use to do whatever we want whenever we want it. This is God who has arrived. We, 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 don't, we don't tell Him to do this here and, and do that here to do our bidding. But He is God and He will not be used, He will not be manipulated, demanded, commanded, required and shouted at by humans. This here is the maker of the universe. When you're dealing with the Holy Spirit, don't treat him like some kind of wind that you could use your jacket to blow on people. This is the maker of, of everything. This is God in front of us. When we're faced with God, humility is required. Are you with me? When, we're, when God is in front of us, when God is among us, humility is what is required. Not telling him to do this, not telling him to do that, not bidding him as if he's some kind of child. There's many ways in which Christendom has done this, where, where we treat the Holy Spirit as if he's some kind of something else, and not treating him as if he is God. Let me give you an example. Um, when, you, when you look at church history, you, you can't help but see times when the Holy Spirit has saved a lot of people at the same time. Okay? And, that, and that is what is called a revival, a true revival. When God just lands on a city and many people get saved at the same time. But we must remember, we must understand this, that He does that as He will. Based on the secret redemption plan of the Godhead. He does not do so at our demand. You with me? Now, you and I, we, we can pray that He saves many people. We can pray that He brings true revival to our city. 
How beautiful would it be if the, the gospel preaching churches in Johannesburg were all packed full to the brim with people, all of them crying out for their souls, crying out for mercy for their souls. How beautiful would that be? We can pray for that, but we can never manufacture that. We can never fake that. No amount of music, no amount of lighting and ambiance can save people when the Holy Spirit is not saving people. We are subject to Him and we pray because we have connection with God, because we've been reconciled with the Godhead, we can plead with Him, Lord, look at all the corruption, look at all the sin, look at all the death, look at all the anger, look at all these families being broken. Please fall down on our city and save people by the, by the millions. We can pray that and I, and I would encourage you to pray that, that the Lord would save many people, but we will not be able to manufacture it. We will not be able to, fit, to, to make that happen with our own hands. We need Him to come and change people's lives. You do not manipulate the Holy Spirit. You don't, you don't, you, you, you don't speak words to manifest things and then now He is in your debt to make those things that you have spoken to be true. Okay? You, 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 don't, you don't tell Him what to do. He's the one who tells you what to do because He is God. As to his purpose on the earth, the Lord Jesus told us in John 14, John 15 and 16, that he comes in Christ's name. He is here to do a work in us for Christ. What is he here to do? He's here to do a work in human beings for Christ's sake. His purpose here on, as he is here on the earth is clear, to exalt Jesus Christ in the hearts and minds of people. To change people all over the world and make them children of God. That is his express purpose as he is here since he landed. I have entitled this sermon series in the book of Acts as the rise of the eternal empire. Many empires, many kingdoms throughout history have risen and fallen. They have established themselves through war, through the shedding of blood, through intimidation of other nations, through negotiations in some cases. The question then becomes, how does this eternal empire of Jesus Christ get established? How does, how does the, the empire of the son of David that will rule the nations forever, how does that empire get established? It is not through war. Otherwise, the disciples would be carrying swords and fighting. It is not through politics. That's why we will never endorse a political candidate as a church or give lip service to anyone's favorite policy positions. Because that's not how this empire gets established. It is not through social reform. Otherwise, we would be holding symposiums and conferences talking about all the social ills of the land and putting time and money and resources into affecting change according to the current pragmatic theories. That is not how this kingdom gets established. So how does this kingdom get established? Through the Holy Spirit. Through the person of the Holy Spirit. It is established through the power of the Holy Spirit as He applies the salvation that Jesus Christ achieved on the lives of men and women throughout the planet. The Holy Spirit, at the discretion of the Father and the Son, gathers disciples in from across the world and that is how this empire subversively grows across the nations. As the Word of God is opened, and Jesus Christ is exalted. Men and women find their hope in Him and the empire grows. That is how this magnificent, forever stable kingdom is built. This means now, practically, for you, young people, as you engage in evangelism, and, in, and even in this young time of your life, as you engage in robust discussions about God's Word and how to apply it to your lives, you are involved in the building and strengthening of the eternal empire. This means for you, church, 
as you forgive those who sin against you, and you come alongside the weak in the faith, and those whose souls are sick with guilt, and you apply to them the remedy of the gospel of grace, you are involved in the great work of strengthening the empire that will stand forever. This means for you, Christian, as you seek to live a quiet and godly life, minding your own business and working hard to feed your family and to serve your fellow believers, you are involved in the work of building this great eternal kingdom. This means for you, parents, as you labor to apply the gospel to your children and to teach them the ways of the Lord and to correct them when they are in error, you are involved in the work of constructing this great and lasting empire. See, before, the, before God fixes the earth and the heavens, He fixes humanity. And how does He fix humanity? By bringing the salvation that Christ applied by, through the power of the Holy Spirit into the hearts and lives of men and women across the world. That is how God is fixing, mending, repairing all the things that are falling apart. It is first repairing in people's lives, reconciling them to God, and, living them, and, and calling them to live lives that are ordered in the way that God calls them to be. That is His purpose. That is His work on the earth. Well, that's the Holy Spirit. Second, now let's look at what does the baptism of the Holy Spirit then mean? What does, it, what does it mean and what does it look like? What did it look like for them? What does it mean for us? See, there is a lot of confusion as to what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And so we must examine this subject carefully. Let me read for us verse 4 again. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, even though Luke here uses the word filled with the Holy Spirit, we know that this is the event that Jesus and John spoke about when they said the disciples would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the word filled here doesn't mean that this is something else. This is actually the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, uh, later on it's called different things. Uh, when, when it falls on the Gentiles, it's called the pouring of the Holy Spirit. It's called baptism of the Spirit, filling of the Holy Spirit, pouring of the Holy Spirit throughout Acts. From this paradigmatic passage here, this, tip, this, this, this passage in front of us, we can define the baptism of the Holy Spirit as the time the Holy Spirit falls upon a believer in the New Testament. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the time when the Holy Spirit first falls upon a believer in the New Testament. It is the first receiving of the Holy Spirit. Now, he fell here on these disciples here in chapter 2. He, and then in, in Acts chapter 10, he was poured out on the Gentile believers for the first time. And then from then on, people get converted, but we don't see Ma massive sound like we saw in this text. We don't see tongues as of fire showing up. We don't see people speaking in tongues. But rather we see changed lives. Changed lives. Baptism of the Spirit the first time came with tongues. These languages here at the beginning. But as, the New, but as New Testament history progresses, people are saved and they evidence their salvation through changed lives. The question in someone's mind today then is, do we get baptized in the Holy Spirit? And the answer is an emphatic yes. An emphatic yes. Come with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians in chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to show you something. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we will see from verse 12. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth and he says, verse 12, 
For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all members of the and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Listen to this. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. In the church at Corinth, they had a lot of problems, they had many problems. Um, where they were, and part of some of the problems that they had is that they were appreciating some spiritual gifts more than others and thus creating divisions among them. Um, Paul's purpose in this chapter is to show the unity, the oneness of the universal body of Christ. That because we were baptized into Christ by the same Spirit, because we drank of the same Spirit, we are irrevocably united and there is no superiority here. Paul says here to the Corinthians, we were, we were all baptized into the same body by the Spirit. But think about this for a second. If you were to read in Acts chapter 18 how the Corinthians were saved, there was no tongues. When, if you were to read in Acts chapter 18 later on today, go read Acts 18 when the Corinthians were saved, the Corinthians he's writing to, there was no tongues. There was no loud sounds. There was no massive show. But the main emphasis in First Corinthians, in, sorry, in the book of Acts chapter 18, when the Corinthians are converted, the main emphasis is that people's lives were changed. Is that people now loved God and wanted to follow God. There is actually, he actually focuses, Luke actually focuses on one particular man there, often and often, talking about how now this man loved the Lord and loved the brothers. He focuses more so on this one guy because that is now, that is the evidence. Okay, we were all baptized in the Spirit um, when we were saved. The baptism of the Holy Spirit has already happened. Listen to this now. Here's, let me just clarify. The baptism of the Holy Spirit has already happened for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit has already happened for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. You have been changed by God. You have had a personal encounter with God and you have been baptized in the Spirit. That is why we can have confidence that we have spiritual gifts. Because the, Spirit, because the Spirit gave us those gifts when He came into us. He changed us, made our heart anew. We had a heart that hated God, hated the things of God, and He renewed us and made us love God. And then He also gave us spiritual gifts by which we can encourage and exhort one another. I, I want to make, if, if, you, if you're not understanding the implication of this, let me, let me just push it further. There is no place in the whole New Testament where we are told to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. No, no place. Okay? You can search the whole New Testament. There is no place where we are told that we are to pray, beseech, beg, ask God for something that we already have. There is no place. Now, hear me, hear me clearly on this. There is no place in the whole Bible where we are told that the reasons we have sins we're struggling with or the reason perhaps that we are ineffective in ministry is because we have had not had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's not, that's not a biblical doctrine. That's extra biblical. It's not biblical at all. If you're struggling with sins, there's many reasons. One of them is not that you are not baptized in the Spirit. However, and, and again, you have to understand, I'm talking to Christians. If you're, if you're an unbeliever, if you're not one who knows the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? If you're not one who has walked with Jesus Christ, who's tasted and seen that the Lord is good, who's, who's had your sins forgiven, then for you, the reason that you're struggling with sin, part of it is because you haven't had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You haven't met with God. God hasn't changed you, you see. 
But at the moment when you believe in Christ Jesus, at the moment that you place your faith in Him, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit and you are changed forever. You do not need to look for anything else, for some power elsewhere, some extra experience, some, some kind of dawn. You don't need to go to someone's meeting on Friday night that will last until the next morning. You, you don't need, there's no extra power. If you are a child of God, you have all the resources. Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 12 is this. If you believe in Jesus Christ, whether, whether you're impressive or not, whether you're slave or free, whether you're poor or rich, whether you're short or tall, whether you're a man or a woman, you are a full member of the body, having the full benefits of life in the spirit and you are needed by the rest of the body you are needed by the rest of the body if you are in Christ the rest of the body needs you he goes on you can read first Corinthians chapter 12 he goes on to say that we need each other in a very serious way that is why division in the church is an extremely serious thing do you know that we are told to not even eat with someone who champions factionalism and divisions in the church. Someone who tries to create groups among us. Okay, let's uh, you know, okay, well, you know, the Tswanas don't understand us. You know, just, oh, oh, you spoke to G, he's a Tswana. That's why he's not getting you. you. You need to come here to us. Or, you know, you know, the, you know these older people, they don't really get us. We, we need to separate from them and, uh, and, and, and create fights. Anyone who does that kind of thing, Titus 3 tells us that we need to rebuke them and rebuke them again and then have nothing to do with them a third time. Because the unity, the fact that we're all baptized by the Spirit, the same Spirit into the same body is a truth that must be championed by us and we must protect that at all costs. We are not to have little, little groups in here. I think the only sanctioned group is really Liverpool supporters and everybody else. But other than that, other than, other than that division, I think if you read my second opinions, you'll see that Liverpool has a, a high place. Uh, never mind. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but really, divisions in the church are something that I, it's something extremely evil because of this, because we've all been baptized by the same Spirit. And part of the, this doctrine that says that you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, you need to get something else, because those people are trying to create a difference between you and them. They're saying that they are living a higher form of life that you don't have. Oh, look at you, poor you. You're still struggling with lying? Shame. Here I am, having the Holy Spirit, walking in a higher form of life. That's trying to create divisions. Because they're trying to say, they're trying to implement in your mind that they have a superiority over you that you don't have. There's something you don't have. There's an experience you haven't gone through that God has seen it fit for me to go through. I want to tell you today that is absolute lies. That is doctrine of demons. If you believe in Christ Jesus, if your trust is exclusively in Christ Jesus, if you only trust in Him, then you can be sure that you have every resource that you need to live a godly life. There's nothing that Christ is holding back from you. There's nothing that He's holding back from you that He doesn't want you to have, that He's being miserly over and giving it to some people and not giving it to you. No such thing. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He loves you with a love incomprehensible. And one of the benefits that Paul speaks of that we have because we, ha because we are in the Spirit uh, we've been sorry because we have been baptized by the Spirit is that we can live lives of purity in ways that we were not able to in the past. You see, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul commands the believers to not be drunk with wine, but rather to be filled with the Spirit. In Romans 8, he uses a different phrase that explains the same thing. In Romans 8, he says, We are to live by the Spirit. In Galatians 5, he uses a different phrase. He says, we must be led by the Spirit. And each of these, these phrases, be filled with the Spirit, live by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, are all pointing to one thing. That we must not be controlled by other things. We are to be controlled by the Spirit. We are not to be controlled by our emotions. 
We are to be controlled by the Spirit. In Luke chapter 6, uh, the, the Pharisees, embarrassed by Jesus, were told by Luke that they were filled with rage and then they started plotting on how, what they can do to Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, we're going to see in a few weeks' time that Ananias was filled with Satan and then he lied. Others, we're told throughout the Bible, are filled with lust and then they act based on what lust wants them to do. And here in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Do not be filled with excessive alcohol and do not so that you're not controlled by it. But rather, God's people are to be filled with the Spirit. Meaning we are to be directed by Him. We are to be led by Him. We are to listen to Him. We are not to allow our tempers, our desires, our ambitions, the situations around us, food, drink, literally anything else to control us. But rather, we are to be students of God's Word and to be led by the Spirit of truth to all righteousness. What needs to control our actions, okay? What you need to be filled with here to your, to your neck, the thing that needs to control your actions is God's Word applied in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Not, your, not anything else. I'm, uh, I'm told by scientists, well, scientists that I see on the internet anyway, that, that power can be used, or energy, power, energy can be used in at least two ways. It can be unleashed or it can be harnessed. Think about the energy, the, the power that's in 20 liters of petrol. That power can be unleashed uh, quickly and explosively by dropping a lighted match into the can. Just drop a, light, a, a bit of matches in there and the, the power is unleashed instantly. Or it can be channeled through the engine of a Toyota Corolla in a controlled burn and used to transport a person 350 kilometers. You see, explosions are spectacular, but last but controlled burns have a lasting effect. They have staying power. The Holy Spirit here has done both. At Pentecost, He exploded on the scene. It was spectacular. Even for you, when you were saved, some of you have testimonies that are remarkable. When you were saved, He exploded on the scene. He changed you. There was a massive switch where instantly your desires changed. Just, there was a, you, you, you wanted to do things differently. You loved God where you didn't love Him before. There was, a, there was an explosion in your life. But also, the Holy Spirit works through the church for the long haul, for the long road to KZN. Through worship, through fellowship, through the word and service, Christians are provided with lasting, staying power. So let me encourage you to that end. Stop reminiscing about the explosion. Stop seeking another explosion. Rather, take a hold of the controlled, lasting burn that the Lord has for you. As the Holy Spirit works in your life, little by little, as you, you, you meet with God's people, you read God's Word, you encourage one another in your homes, you just seek to do what is right in your daily lives, in living under God. That's where you should be. That is, that is the life that is filled with the Spirit, a life that is led to the, by the Spirit. Well, third and well, we've, third and finally, we now come to the meaning of tongues. The meaning of tongues. Come back to our text and look with me at verse five. Uh, verse five in Acts chapter two. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, 
Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Oh, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, Ah, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the, of the day. By the way, before I continue, just because it's the third hour of the day, just because he's saying it this way, doesn't mean that you're allowed to get drunk at other times of the day. Okay? Okay? He's just, he's just trying to show the ridiculousness of the point. But don't now go home and say, well, I can get drunk at the sixth hour of the day. That's not what he's saying. Anyway, let's continue. But this, verse 16... But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, Luke tells us in verse 5 that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews from every nation under heaven. You must understand Luke in the terms of the time where he was right, when he was writing. When he says every nation under heaven, he is referring to the known world at that time, specifically wherever the Roman Empire was. And the magnitude of what is occurring here, as these disciples, remember, right? Remember, the disciples, the, the wind Cackle, rushing wind, uh, loud noises, fire, these tongues of fire fall on them. And then they start speaking in these different languages. And they all just start almost um, spontaneously and unable to control it. They speak in these different languages. And someone is speaking in the tongue of a, of a Mede. Someone is speaking in Arabic. Someone is speaking in Hebrew. Someone is speaking in uh, you know, the tongues, the tongues that they spoke in North Africa. As they're all, this is all happening at the same time and people are confused. What on earth is going on here? Why are all these men speaking in all these different languages? And the, that magnitude of what is occurring is shown to us by Luke conflating a whole lot of what different people were saying at this occurrence. Um, everyone's astonished. Everyone's astonished here. And what Luke details for us, uh, you, what, what he's actually doing here is not that Somebody actually said this. So you see, if you read in your Bible, it might look like one person was saying this whole thing from verse, uh, verse 7 up until verse 13. But, rather, but actually, it's not one person. It's Luke putting together what was being said by different people. So what you, what you, the, the, the clear image of what's happening here is you have all these different people from all over the Roman Empire, all over uh, Europe, Asia and North Africa, they're all there and each of them are saying, wait, this guy's speaking in my language, talking about the things that God is doing. And then another guy saying, wait, wait a second, this guy's also speaking in my language. In the language that I grew up with, he's, he's actually proclaiming God's wonders in my language. And then, then the proselyte, who's not a Jew, is standing there saying, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I can hear this guy, this, this one guy, that's, that small guy, tiny guy at the back there, he's speaking in my language. See, that's the image. There's, these guys standing there talking in these different languages and everybody's saying, my language, my language, my language. What does it mean? What, what does it mean that now everything has been spoken in my language? Um, some in verse 12 are honestly wanting to know. You see in verse 12, they just honestly want to know. They're inquiring, what does this mean? 
Okay, they, they want to understand. Someone interpret this for me. What does it mean? What? Okay, they're clearly speaking in languages from all over the Roman Empire. What does this mean anything? And others, of course, are mocking, saying that they are drunk, as we see there. And so it is up to the twelve, the, the twelve apostles, to explain to the crowds what's going on. And Peter, speaking on behalf of the twelve, that's why Luke says, standing with the eleven, so he's speaking on behalf of them, he's the spokesman. He stands up and preaches. And the first thing he says, he says, guys, no, nobody's drunk, it's too early for that. Um, and then he points them to Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2. And in pointing us to the prophecy, we see a number of features of truth here. First, in verse 17, he quotes Joel prophesying about events that will happen in the last days. You see that, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be. Peter is affirming here that he was speak that, that now, as Peter is speaking, the last days have dawned. The last days have dawned. That when the, the, the Spirit has fallen, the, the, the Spirit falling on these believers is a last days event. Second, the prophecy points to the children of Israel prophesying and seeing visions as a result of the Spirit of God being poured out on them. The idea that Peter is pointing you to, to here is that, uh, uh, is that what you're hearing and seeing happen with this group of 120, when you're seeing this happen, this, this group of people speaking in all these different languages, what you should take from that is that the Holy Spirit has been poured out. The promises of God are now coming to fruition. Okay, we were all expecting this, Israel. Remember, he's talking to the people of Israel. We were all expecting the last days when God is going to repair everything. He's going to fix all of our hurts. All of our burdens is going to take away from us. And he was telling us all the time that it was going to be the last days. And we, one of the signs of the last days was that the Spirit was going to be poured out and the people of God are going to start speaking and seeing visions and all these kinds of things. And he says, what you're seeing is exactly that. So what he's pointing them to is now is the time for salvation. Now is the time that we were all waiting for. We're, we're waiting for a renewal. We're waiting for a renewal. The renewal is now here. Third, uh, the prophecy in verse 19 and 20 speaks about many wonders and signs being seen. And verse 20 suggests that this is a day of judgment because he says, as you see, as you see there, that uh, the, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. That is signs of judgment. Uh, this is, in one sense, it's a day of judgment on Israel. However, it is a, a, a loud day, a magnificent day of mercy to all. Uh, verse 21 makes it clear what will happen in these last days. And that is this, that everyone, look at that last line, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is the meaning of tongues. That is the meaning of these languages. It means that everyone, literally everyone, no matter where they come from, what station they're in, where they grew up, what they have known, what they have not known, all of those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The tongues are announcing loudly, salvation is now available to all. The great program of eternity has begun. Think of it this way. Uh, when they were opening up vaccinations, uh, they first opened them up to seniors, right? And then they opened up them up to the next age bracket and then the next age bracket. And each time when they opened it up to the next age bracket and the next age bracket, they announced it. They said, now it's open. Now it's open for these people. Okay, it wasn't open for you. Now it's open for you. Now it's open for you. Well, that's exactly what's happening with these gifts of languages. It's exactly the same thing. These languages are an announcement. In the past, salvation was just here among the Israelites. Now it's open to everyone. Now it's open to everyone. All of us now, different as we are, can come and have eternal life. 
For a long time, God's redeeming work, God's saving power, was working among the Jews primarily. It, that, was foc- that was where its focus was. Now, a lot of non-Jews, a lot of non-Israelites were saved throughout those years. But not wholesale, not in this way, not opened up to everyone, giving everyone the same name by which they might be saved. Now, since the Holy Spirit has touched down in this way, the work of the Lord is proceeding throughout the world. Now, I know some of you are wondering about the gift of tongues and how it applies today. And for that, let me encourage you to just go to our website, heritagebaptist.co.za, go to recent sermons, and then click topics, and under topics, click tongues, and there you will find a message that Michael preached a few years ago that is titled, Why We Don't Speak in Tongues. Because I'm referring you to that sermon because that sermon was designed to answer that question in its entirety. To deal with all the different questions around speaking tongues today will be going rather beyond the scope of the text in front of us. But let me encourage you, if you want to know more about this, go to that sermon in the website. But in case someone doesn't go to the website, let me just give you the highlights, some, just the cliff notes. Tongues were always languages because their purpose was to announce to the world that salvation has come. Tongues were not gibberish. Okay? They were actual languages, not some weird, incomprehensible, private prayer language. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul shows that there are also an announcement of judgment to Israel, and Michael deals with that. And so to understand more about all of those things, please do go to that sermon on the website because Michael spent about an hour just explaining all the particular parts. The main issue here, the main issue in front of us, the main, I don't want you to be distracted from the main issue in front of us, that salvation is now open to everyone. The announcement has come. Don't be distracted by the sideshows, dear friends. The announcement has come. The name that you need is Jesus Christ. You're looking for a name for, the, for your sins to be forgiven. You're looking for a, na- for a name to repair the deep longings of your heart. You're looking for a name, and that name I'm here to tell you, Peter's telling us, that name is Jesus Christ. Don't be distracted by how big your sin is. Don't be distracted by what you don't know or what you do know. Don't be distracted by all kinds of things going on. Jesus now is calling everyone with their own language to come to Him because the Great Repair Project is now open for business to the whole world. Come and be repaired. And those of you who have already come to the Lord Jesus Christ, have already treasuring Him, walk in the Spirit. Continue walking on, pursuing Him, loving loving Him until He returns to visibly wrap up the project and bring salvation to its completion. Amen. Let's pray.